You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I'd like to start out, as I always do, by reminding you of the wealth of information and free stuff available to you at wealthformula.com. Uh, go ahead and check it out. Free books, free downloads, all sorts of stuff there. There's also an opportunity to sign up for Wealth Formula Network, uh, which is our private uh, group where we have a course with the likes of uh, Tom Wheelwright and Ken McElroy and Kevin Day and a lot of smart people, me included. Uh, and uh, that is also something that serves as the foundation for ultimately what is the Wealth Formula Network community, which is a Facebook group, bi-weekly mastermind call on Zoom so we can see each other. It's a video conferencing call, which is very popular with the group and, uh, and some additional uh, content as well. So check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com when you're really ready to take it to the next level with the Wealth Formula community. Now, uh, as for today's show, uh, going back to 2014, of course, that now seems like ancient history being only uh, five years ago, but 2014, I made some interesting decisions. You see, two of my businesses, they're both medical businesses, were absolutely killing it. I mean, for me, listen, for me, they were killing it, right? There's people who are making you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but you know, for, uh, for a guy who does pretty well, I, I, this was the period of my life where I just felt like, well, man, I'm just, I've got these businesses that are just blowing it up. I was making uh, a lot of money. And unfortunately, um, I made a mistake in that period of time, which I sort of regret. You see, what I did is instead of taking um, money off the table and putting most of it into stable assets like real estate, um, I decided to dump the majority of it back into the businesses that I had and uh, make them grow even bigger. Now, I actually took it to a different degree. You know, it wasn't just like growing the same business in the same place. I decided to take Chicago-based businesses and go on a national campaign, opening offices across the country, um, you know, all on my own dime because I wouldn't take this risk, this type of risk with other people's money, but it, this is the type of uh, entrepreneur that I am. Um, or at least I was, I think I've changed quite a bit. Uh, and I did it because I figured if I could crush it in Chicago, like I was, then it would be a cinch for me to the same thing in middle markets across the country where advertising and stuff like that was, uh, you know, wasn't nearly as expensive. And frankly, I was also fueled, um, by people around me telling me that it was the right thing to do and, uh, that, you know, they, they had what it took uh, to help me get there. And of course, that emboldened me as well. And that's not a, any of their fault. That's my fault for not really having a true sense of, of what it took and, and going ahead and pulling the trigger anyway. So unfortunately, I was wrong. So this huge national expansion that was going to make me, you know, $100 million and all this stuff that I had in my head for liquidation events, I was wrong. You know, as good as I am as an entrepreneur, seeing opportunities at a high level in that situation, 
I didn't know what I didn't know, particularly about being a, an operator in multiple states. I didn't have a sense for the staff that I needed to pull something like that off. The time it would take to actually turn profitable and the carrying costs associated with that and the marketing capital that I would need, which is, of course, a big part of the carrying costs. And it just added up significantly, very quickly, and I had to pull the plug and I lost a lot of money. Now, I learned a lot from that failed national campaign, but uh, in exchange, I lost a lot of money as well. So it was a very, very expensive, uh, you know, school of hard knocks, so to speak. So what would I have done differently in hindsight? Well, um, the smartest thing for me to do back then, really in my view, would have been to take these high-performance businesses um, that, you know, I mean, they were in areas that uh, is sort of, uh, you know, economically influenced, et cetera, and to take that profit and milk it while I could and, and buy real estate, have my high-performing businesses buy sort of the slow cook of real estate investments had I done that, I would have been literally millions of dollars ahead of where I am today. And that I truly believe that. You see, there were lots of opportunities back there in 2014 that were ripe for the taking. And frankly, if you bought real estate in 2014, you know, frankly, anybody could look like a genius making money by buying real estate in 2014. Um, and for me, luckily, I had a friend, uh, I have a friend named Rick, who's a mortgage broker in Chicago, which uh, you guys will hear from again shortly because he also has a great fund. He sent me a couple of apartment buildings back then, thought I should take a look at them um, and, and, and possibly buy them. And I did, and I took his advice. I bought a couple of buildings. So, I, you know, I took a little bit of the money out of all this high-flying uh, build uh, high-flying uh, uh, businesses that I was having. I actually put some aside and bought some buildings. So while I lost millions of dollars in that field national expansion in 2014 and 15, those buildings I bought, which I didn't really think of much. I mean, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, fine, I'll buy it. Uh, they ended up selling in 2018 for 506% return on equity. Now, it was a good chunk of money. It was great. Um, it was still not even close to the losses I incurred on the field business ventures, but it showed me the power of staying disciplined and not getting greedy like I did. Um, at the time, buying those buildings, frankly, didn't seem very exciting. I mean, I knew that real estate is where I wanted to invest, but it was a lot more fun ma making, you know, like sort of making a lot of money rather than investing it. So I really wasn't focused on investing a, a higher percentage of my money into things that were more, um, you know, slow burn things like real estate. I just kind of thought, well, gosh, if I could, you know, have something that gives me a thousand percent or, you know, or more within a, a year on my money, why don't I just do that? Um, so anyway, now I understand uh, you know, five years later, and you learn a lot in five years. I'll tell you, wow, I'm so much smarter. Now I understand uh, the power of investing. And I also understand the power of boring. The power of boring is, a, is something that you yeah, really got to get in your head. 
What do I mean by boring? Well, I mean, well, first of all, we'll tell you this much. Uh, if you're looking for a diamond in the rough in terms of buying businesses or getting involved, usually it's going to be something boring because that's where people aren't looking, right? Okay, but aside from businesses, what I mean is when you find something that, you know, as an investor uh, that works, say, you know, there's an asset class that you invest in in your area and it's working for you, um, you know, you're an operator yourself or say you are a passive investor and you find an operator that you really like um, or a couple of operators that you really like. You don't have to keep playing the field, so to speak. You know, you really don't. I think I get that, that question a lot is, well, you know, should I continue to diversify? I mean, I'm not even exactly sure sometimes what that means because um, if you're trying to find multiple multifamily uh, groups, um, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not actually sure exactly why you would if you had like two groups that you really liked uh, and that you know were really good. Now, if somebody comes up and is very obviously better or, or you know, maybe has a completely different model that you like maybe, but uh, I, I don't know about sh chasing shiny objects, about being uh, sort of, you know, in, in, constantly playing the field, so to speak. If you're a passive investor that has found a group or two that you like, you don't have to go find another group to diversify. And I can tell you from experience as an investor, again, boring works. On the other hand, there is no reason uh, not to take a little money to play with on higher risk stuff, higher risk endeavors. Uh, for example, in the case of back in 2014, Maybe it would have been smart for me to say, okay, say, well, maybe we'll try uh, something, some modest growth thing. And maybe instead of a 90% of the revenue or, you know, the profits, throwing that back into the business, maybe I throw in 50, you know, and, and take the other 50 and, and take it off the table and throw it into something boring that, you know, it's uh, going to grow that's safer and stabler. Um, there's also a role for, as you know, in my view, uh, to take that, uh, take an opportunity for what I call the asymmetric risk investment, sort of the opportunity to make a hundred, you know, a 10 X or a hundred X on something. And if you're in a point in your life where you have a little money to play with and uh, you're, you're willing to, you know, take a loss on it in exchange for a little bit of uh, opportunity to make life changing money, and that might be worth it as well for for some of you. You know that that I'm, um, you know, for me it's that that area is cryptocurrency. I think uh, I think there is lots of opportunities there. But again, I don't use my real investing money for that kind of thing, right? I mean, what I do is I use what I call the Maserati money or maybe the vintage sports car money to use on that. The things that. You know, if I bought a Maserati, a brand new Maserati, um, I like Maseratis. I just use that as an example. I don't know if it's for sure what I would buy if I bought a new car. But, um, but you know, the second you drive that thing off the lot, it's going to lose a significant amount of value. And, you know, 10 years from now, it'll be worth pretty much nothing. And so, you know, we buy those kinds of things all the time. And if you think about some of the things that we buy, what if you just, you know, took some of that money and said, okay, well, I'm going to, I know um, 
with a Maserati, I'm never going to get a return, but here I may get a 10x or 100x return. So I'm going to take that money this year and you know buy some Bitcoin or something like that. Anyway, um, so I do that. I do that. And I, uh, I will say, though, however, most of my money, uh, the vast majority is still going into real estate uh, with the same old boring operators. So speaking of topics that might not seem sexy, this week's podcast uh, is an interview that I did with the founder of Harvest Returns. Uh, this is investing in agriculture. And it may, again, not sound that exciting, but as far as I know, people need to eat and are going to continue to do so regardless of the economy. So that alone should get you interested in potentially learning about this asset class, if you can call it that. Um, it's actually pretty broad. Uh, so we will get to that interview when we come back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Chris Raleigh. He is a military veteran and the founder of Harvest Returns, which is a crowdfunding platform for streamlined agricultural investments. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on today, Buck. Yeah, so um, we talked a little bit at the beginning and uh, you said you've been listening to the show for a couple of years. So it's always nice to actually, I didn't know that before we, we started. So it's actually nice to have somebody who's a listener uh, come on. I don't even have to explain who the audience is. You already know. Right, right. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, how did you go from military veteran? Um, you know, I, I noticed you were deployed in Iraq and parts of Africa and all this stuff. Next thing you know, you're, and I think you had some uh, background in finance and the next thing you know, you're in the agricultural world. How did that happen? Yeah, that's actually kind of how I got into this and, and set up this company. So um, I grew up, you know, pretty much a city boy without really any connection to farming, agriculture, sat down and ate TV dinners in the eighties, like a lot of kids just kind of took my food for granted. And then, uh, you know, after college, I went in the Navy and as they say, joined the Navy, see the world and traveled to all these places, interesting places. And one thing I noticed, no matter how poverty stricken and war torn a country was, uh, people were relying on agriculture. And in many of these countries, people are much closer to their agriculture system because they're either raising their food, own food or growing their own livestock than we are where we, you know, either call up Uber Eats or go to a restaurant or um, buy it at the supermarket. Um, combine that with an interest uh, early on in investment. I've worked uh, commercial real estate companies and in tech background and in finance, as you said, and I have been a real estate investor for a long time. So after the 2008 crash, I started looking into different sorts of assets, types of real estate asset classes I could, I could uh, invest in. And one of these things that came to mind was farming and agriculture uh, based on that previous interest. And it uh, turns out it's kind of hard to invest in farming. You either need a lot of capital up front to go out and buy a piece of land and then either farm it yourself or hire somebody to farm it. Uh, there's some farmland REITs and, and things like that that have fairly high minimum investments. Uh, but it was pretty pretty ch tough. At the same time, uh, crowdfunding platforms primarily focused on real estate were coming out. So uh, uh, 2016, I had an idea to combine my interest in agriculture and crowdfunding and, and fintech and start up this platform, Harvest Returns. And we launched the platform uh, that year, spent about a year putting together our initial deal flow, getting 
investments out, building our investor base, and we've closed our first few deals, and now we're uh, really in the growth stage. So what kind of agriculture are we talking about and where and, 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 mm-hmm. uh, and that whole thing? Yeah, so agriculture is a wide, wide investment space, just like, um, you know, there's multiple segments in real estate that people might be familiar with, multifamily, um, commercial, retail, whatever. Agriculture, you have various things, kind of your bread and butter agriculture that most people associate when they drive through the country is, is that row crop farming, corn, soybeans, really commodity-based farming. And from an investment standpoint, the best way to invest in those farms is just to go out and buy the land and lease it to somebody. But that's that sort of high-touch investment. And you've got to know what you're doing. And, and the other part of that is you're very reliant on your the commodity prices. And a lot of row crop farmers in the U.S. are hurting these days because they've been in a slump. That The agriculture that we sort of specialize in is, is that more specialized type of agriculture. Um, indoor growing. That's a really interesting and growing area. Hydroponics, when you invest in an indoor growing sort of operation, you're de-risking the investment because you're taking away the biggest variable, which is weather and water scarcity. So that's one of the ones that we're really interested in. Uh, We're doing the more sort of higher end, uh, specialized, sustainable farming with livestock, so grass-fed cattle livestock, that those sorts of things where you're getting a higher premium, you're also reducing the volatility with those pricing. So you're not necessarily purely relying on the beef prices. Um, anytime you've got a premium product, you get uh, less volatility and you're less susceptible to market swings. So and that's, that's our focus. You guys are more, um, well, you're, you're selecting operators basically, right? You're, right. We're syndicators. You're syndicators and you're partnering with uh with, with what you consider to be high quality operators is that right that's exactly right we have uh farmers from all over the country and actually all over the world approach us and we you know net those down based on a number of factors the sponsors track record the the financials of what they're doing um the sort of non tangibles of sustainability and impact and then we uh, strike up a deal with the ones we think are, are going to be most attractive to investors and start the due diligence. And, and tell us, tell, is, is this all U.S.? It's not all U.S.-based. No, we've actually done some overseas deals. Um, we worked uh, syndication for a Belize farm. We've got um, some other things brewing in other parts of the country that I can't necessarily talk about because of the solicitation rules or other parts of the world. Um, but we get about 50% of our inquiries are overseas and 50% are domestic. Yeah. And, and, and what do you look for in operators? Obviously, you're looking for risk mitigation. You talked about mm-hmm. you know, weather for you know, hydroponics. Um, you know, when you're looking at particularly, say, you know, I'm familiar with some of the stuff in Belize that's going mm-hmm. there. Um, I mean, what do you what do you look for in in in, a, in an operating group uh, when you look at uh, agriculture? I mean, certainly I have a lot of experience doing this on the real estate side, mm-hmm. um, but I'm curious on the agricultural side. Are a lot of the variables the same? Um, what are you looking for in those teams? You know, are they and are they bigger teams? Are they smaller teams? Are they, you know, mom and pop? farms or are they you know big industrial you know what i mean so so what's what's uh how does that work yeah so 
the one thing people need to realize that, you know, you hear a lot of sort of bad mouthing industrial commercial farming in the U S but most of the farms, even the very large ones that people would see as large commercial scale are family run more than 95% of the farms in the U S are family run. So there's that aspect. Uh, the teams can vary. So we do see that multi-generational farmer who is uh, looking to expand their operation or, or change it, convert to organic or something is some sort of higher value product or put some sort of processing facility to increase the value of, of what they're doing. Uh, but the other aspect of this is we're looking for people that not only know how to have the agronomy side down, know how to produce something, but actually have the business side down. And so the teams are, are varied. You might have people coming together that have a mix of agriculture and, and finance, uh, operational business background. How do you mitigate some of the overseas risks that, you know, like, I mean, I, I know a lot of people get really excited about overseas investments. Mm-hmm. Personally, um, that's not necessarily my cup of tea. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have to deal with a different set of laws. You have to deal, you know, with things go south. Um, you know, you don't have necessarily have the same recourse, et cetera. How can you, uh, how do you deal with that part of the, the risk? Yeah, I would say we're, we're much more selective with what we do on the overseas side. We like to have um, teams, one, you've got to have a footprint on the ground. So, it, it, and just coincidentally, some, the, the two investments we've looked at that we um, have a mixture of local and expat team members together because if you don't have the local element you're you're not going to be able to maneuver in that overseas environment you and the expat i think that just helps you know people understand um western investors have a western tie to the to the team that's there right and and you know visiting the deals and just a, a higher level of scrutiny and due diligence which is why that's not necessarily our bread and butter but we we are interested because that's where the demand for capital is there's just on the farming side um we do see the demand from farmers uh who have limited access to capital in, in emerging markets but also in some of these on the u.s side in some of these specialty industries the entire ag system ag finance system is basically optimized to finance row crops and the the terms of the loans haven't really changed much in 50 years, which presents a, a good opportunity for us to come in and do things creatively. I, I remember, you know, I, I, this is not a space that I'm terribly familiar with, but I remember reading, um, you know, that, that um, you know, of course, farms in the U.S. in particular, this was something that a lot of big money was looking at, too. Mm-hmm. Has, that, has that driven up prices uh, quite a bit in the last, say, decade or so? I'd say on the row crop side, that institutional interest, uh, pension funds, university endowments have nice allocations of their portfolio, maybe 10 to 20% in things like timber and farmland. And I think, I wouldn't say it's driven up the prices that much. I think it's maybe propping up the price or keeping the prices from falling precipitously in the case of row crops, because those farms are having a tough time with commodity prices being, you know, especially like soy and corn being in sort of a long-term slump. Uh, that presents an opportunity for those people who want to in, invest in those, but it, but it also, um, the, the more boutique sort of projects that we do, I think there's, there's not as much competition or awareness of them. What would be an example of that? And, and I know, you know, a solicitation issue, but just broadly speaking, what would be an example where you're able to, you know, potentially avoid larger investors while at the same time doing something at a scale that's not, 
you know, so small that it, you know, doesn't have, it becomes unstable. Right. So I can talk about a deal we just closed uh, a, a week ago, and that's a greenhouse operation in Kentucky. Uh, that the capital stack on that deal was about thirteen million dollars. They've had, um, and don't quote me. It's it's a range. It's up in that. It's up in that range. And there there was debt and equity investors in that, and they just needed uh, to top off as the project uh, finished up with some operating capital. And we raised uh, a little over half a million dollars to to get that investment closed and to get that project uh, to completion and, and took a, an equity position. We've also done debt. Uh, notes where we collateralize with either with assets from the farming operation themselves. It's almost like structured like a mezzanine sort of financing. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about your actual platform. Mm -hmm. This is, uh, I presume, uh, since, uh, well, it's a platform, but it, it sounds like it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not necessarily like a regulation crowdfunding or, um, uh, AAA crowdfund uh, type vehicle. Is it for accredited investors? Is it for, who's it for? Yeah, we're, we're doing Reg D offering. So 506C, B, so primarily for accredited investors, although we do have you know, pre-existing relationship, we can bring in some uh, non-accredited, limited number of non-accredited on, on some of the deals when we structure that way. We take uh, our investment minimums range anywhere between $5,000, $25,000. So, you know, some people argue what's the definition of crowdfunding? What's the limit? Um, because, hey, crowdfunding is $500 or $1,000. Well, that. You're not really doing crowdfunding, though, if you're. Yeah. Reg D 506B or C. Right, right. We're not doing Reg CF and, or Reg A+. Plus. I, I'd like to get into those someday, but frankly, when the, you know, the SEC finished working that, that legislation and taking an eight-page legislation, turning it into a 384-page set of rules, they made it arduous to raise money from the crowd. And it's expensive to do that. Too. Yes. The other issue. Um, so <clears throat> so the, let's talk about, like, you know, when you think of agriculture, right, it's, you know, again, from a from a purely um, practical standpoint, it's very appealing. Like the idea, hey, you know, I mean, I sort of fantasize myself about, man, you know, one day I'll own a farm and uh, mm -hmm. I can live off that farm and you know whatever. Um, although you know, I'm I'm about as uh, white collar and not uh, able to do anything as they get. Even though I, I can, I can, uh, I learned to use a drill uh, by drilling through skulls and neurosurgery. Sure, sure. But but the idea is very romantic, almost, mm -hmm. and it's almost like, gosh, you know, with all the talk of the zombie apocalypse and everything like that, maybe they're right, and maybe I ought to be part of this <laughs> and own some food now. Let's talk about the yield side, though. How does that look? Because that's where at least things that I've seen in the past have been like, well, that's not that attractive. So how 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 um, I know you can't talk about mm -hmm. you can't talk about forward looking things, but tell us kind of what you know the types of yields that one can expect and the types mm -hmm. of things you're doing. Right. So the the specialty types of projects that we're doing, and some of them are development projects, are quite similar to what you might see in a commercial real estate deal. Um, say maybe IRR's internal rate of return of 8% to 15, 20%, depending on, you know, various risk reward components. And, you know, there's really three ways you drive, um, 
returns from agriculture. One is the price of that underlying commodity. And, and as I said, we, we tend to focus on those premium products like grass-fed beef because you have less price volatility and less risk. Um, there's the base asset. So price of the land, maybe price of the infrastructure in the operation. And then, you know, where you br get your alpha from the investment is how well is the farm operated. This is where you create the value. Um, or destroy the value if you're if you're not operating it well, and that's kind of the three things. But the nice thing about agriculture is that is the demographics. You know, it's just like real estate; people have to have a place to live, and people have to have something to eat. And the population continues to increase. Now, is your is your particular project is it is it or is your business project specific, or is it like an open fund? So. Right now, up, up until this point, we have been project, direct project investment. So you look on our platform, you get to learn about the sponsor, get to learn about the specifics of the, the deal, uh, the individual farm, and uh, all the, the economics behind that and, and make a decision after you review the documents to invest. That said, we are putting together a multi-asset fund uh, that takes advantage of the Opportunity Zone legislation, and we're going to focus on uh, sustainable agriculture. So we're excited about getting that launched here fairly soon. How, and, and interesting in the opportunity zone. How does how does that how does that work? Do you have a lot of opportunity zones in uh, in areas where there's agriculture? Is that uh, there are? In fact, um, you know, yesterday, Sonny Purdue, the Secretary of the Agriculture, was at the White House, and he mentioned that forty percent of the eighty-seven, roughly forty percent of the eighty-seven hundred opportunity zones are in rural areas, and you know, of course most of those or a large number of those are suitable for agriculture. Interesting. So one other question that always comes that uh, for me at least is of, of real interest is, mm -hmm. is there any outside of this opportunity zone stuff in general with agriculture, are there, are there tax benefits to investors? There can be, it's, it's very, um, you know, there's a depreciation piece if you've got infrastructure in place. So that's just like real estate, uh, depending on which state you're in, there are some, some tax and, and in some of the overseas jurisdiction, there's some tax favorability. It's, it's a little bit, I'd say there's, you know, there's new market tax credits. There's all those sorts of things, depending on deal by deal specific, uh, that you might see in commercial real estate or, or say multifamily. Um, so what, what your, sort of what's your argument right now? Like why agriculture? Why not? Why now? A couple of reasons. Um, I, I talk about the demographics. Um, 10 million hungry mouths to feed in the next 20 years or so, 20, 25 years. As uh, the other thing that you see globally is as wealth increases across these populations, there's a shift from plant protein to animal protein. The second piece is that people are getting increasingly specialized diets. So you talk keto, vegan, high protein, all fish, pescatarian, you name it, organics only, um, gluten-free, all these specialized diets require um, more fragmented agriculture production. And that those fragmented and specialized agriculture production methods can be capital intensive. You also see this revolution in agriculture technology where you've got uh, biotech, the you know, GMO seeds, there's a lot of controversy around that, but overall it's a, it's a good thing for the food system. You've got um, drones that are surveilling and sensing fields and, and saving water in this indoor agriculture. All these different ag tech things are capital intensive. And we, you know, our bread and butter is raising money for these sort of specialized ways to dr 
to meet the need uh, for this increasingly diverse food system. So how do we learn more about what you're doing, what you're up to? Yeah, so the easiest way is go to harvestreturns.com. We've got a lot of educational material on the website, a lot of blog posts and things like that where you can learn about specific uh, fragments of the agricultural investment class. And then you can uh, register and if you're qualified, look and um, invest in one of our offerings. Chris, thanks so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Buck. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I uh, want to make sure, uh, you know, hopefully you enjoyed the show, but I have, uh, I have to tell you, it's important for you to understand that when I have a group that, uh, uh, that actively raises capital, uh, like Harvest Returns, I need to make a disclaimer, and that is that I've not invested with this group. I have not done a significant amount of due diligence. I don't, and I don't get paid by them. I'm not a, uh, you know, in any sort of way. Um, so anything that you hear on this show is purely educational about harvest returns. Um, if you invest, you'll need to do your own due diligence from A to Z. Uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just, uh, I wanted to have this topic out there because people are thinking about it all the time, but I really have not had a chance um, to significantly look into this group. So uh, anyway, it sounds certainly worth uh, doing a little bit of additional due diligence on if you have an interest in and in spreading out to some of these other asset classes. Um, now the investments that I have vetted um, and that I do stand by typically are not seen by the general public because that would be considered general solicitation. Uh, I, if you are an accredited investor, you can uh, see some of the stuff that we're doing within that, which is stuff that I, I typically are, am all, you know, vetting myself and doing due diligence on. And if you're an accredited investor, you can join that group. It's called Investor Club, and you can sign up for that at wealthformula.com. So feel free to do so if you so desire. Also, remember that even if you're not an accredited investor, you can still be part of the inner circle of Wealth Formula by joining Wealth Formula Network. And again, you can check out all of the things that you can get by doing that at wealthformularoadmap.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.